chapter 23, verse 34. I'm going to read one verse this morning and preach to you on one verse. I will ask you if you will stand to your feet one last time in the honor of the reading of the Word of God. The Bible says, Then Jesus said, Father, forgive them, for they do not know what they do. And they divided His garments and cast lots. Father, we love You this morning. And God, we come together to worship You. God, to honor You. Lord, to show our gratitude, Father, that You would love us. God, that You would save us. God, that You would be willing to step in and pay the price which we are unable to pay for ourselves. God, I pray now, Lord, as I preach this morning, that You would anoint me to preach Your Word and the power and the demonstration of the Holy Spirit of God. Lord, that You would minister to needs, Father, this morning. God, that You would save sinners. And Lord, most of all, simply that You would have Your way. And God, we acknowledge right here and right now that Your ways are higher than our ways. And God, we don't always understand what it is uh, that, that You want to do and how You want to move. And Lord, therefore, we simply yield to You this morning and pray, God, that You would have Your way with us as Your people this morning. Help us to be sensitive not to quench the moving of the Holy Spirit. Help us to be sensitive this morning to allow You to move and do whatever it is that You will in our midst. God, we'll be very cautious to make sure that You alone receive the glory for what You do in Your house this morning. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. I've been pondering doing what I'm going to begin this morning for some period of time. I want to preach to you a series that I don't really know when it will end. I do know it starts today. It may be four weeks. It may be seven or eight. But I want us to look at the death of Jesus Christ. There is really nothing more important to our faith than the death of Jesus Christ and His resurrection from the dead. We can look at everything else, we can preach about everything else, but until we understand the death of Christ, this is what our entire faith hinges upon, is His death. It was for the reason of dying that He actually took uh, and pushed aside His glory and splendor of heaven and clothed Himself in flesh, and the Word became flesh, so that one day He might die in our stead. This is why He came. Out of all of the things for a preacher to preach on, there is nothing more important than the death and resurrection of Christ. And understanding that can cause me, as a man who has been preaching now for ten years, to find myself in a position as I move into this sermon series, of extreme dependency upon God. For if there's one area that I don't want to be wrong on, if there is one area that I don't want to make any mistakes on, it is the area of the death and message of the cross. Before I get to our text, speaking of the death of Christ, which our entire faith rests upon, it is a death that is different than every other death in the history of the world and any death that will ever come from this moment forward. Let me say that it was a natural death. 
By that I mean that He actually died. By that I mean that He actually breathed His last breath and experienced the same form of death of the body that you and I will experience one day. How is this possible for God to die? The answer is He became man. He was God, but He was also man. He was the God-man. Not only was His death a natural death, but it was also a predetermined death. This was the reason He came. But it was also supernatural. Supernatural in what it accomplished. Supernatural in that there has never been and never will be another death like His. And not only is this true of His death, but it is also true of His birth and His life. There was no birth like His, there was no life like His, and there will never be another. It was supernatural. Because of who He was, the Creator of the universe, His death had to be voluntary. When we read the text, it seems as if it was stripped away from Him. But His death was voluntary. He told us, no man takes my life from me, but I lay it down freely. If you don't think it was voluntary, can I remind you of John chapter 18, when the very people who came to crucify Him in the Garden of Gethsemane, they came and they approached Him. And they said, are you Jesus? And His response was, I am. The great name of divinity from the beginning of ages. The great I Am. He speaks that word and the very captors who came to take Him, the Bible tells us they fell back and all fell to the ground. A moment of divine power that we can hardly fully understand reading the text. But the Word spoke the word I Am and His captors fell to the ground. If the very word that he spoke was powerful enough to cause these soldiers, these men of strength, all of them simultaneously at the same moment to fall to the ground, then trust me, friends, they didn't arrest him on their own authority and their own strength. His death was voluntary. This is why he came. His hour had come. That He would lay His life down for us voluntarily is overwhelming. But this was the reason that the Word became flesh and dwelt amongst us. I want us to study together this thought. From the moment our Savior was attached to the cross, This is the reason He came. From the moment that the nails are plunged through His hands and His his wrists and through His ankles. From the moment that He literally began to die. The reason that He came. I want us to study what our Savior spoke from the cross. And my sermon series is titled, Spoken from the Cross. The Bible records seven things that Jesus said while He was on the cross. 
And I want us to examine what they are and what was His message to us from the cross. I will probably be going through these in the order of which they were said. This is the first thing that our Savior spoke from the cross. And let that bring us to our text. Verse 34. Then Jesus said, Father, forgive them, for they do not know what they do. Let us look for a moment at His journey to the cross. He was in the world, and the world was made through Him, and the world did not know Him. Eyes that were blinded by sin were unable to see His beauty and His divine majesty. His life was born in humility. It was lived in obscurity. His ministry was under constant scrutiny. His sentencing was a mockery. The judges had nothing to accuse Him of, yet because the people cried out, Crucify Him! Crucify Him! They gave in to their murderous threats. And for Him, no ordinary death could do. He is brought to the cross. He is crucified there, the Bible tells us in verse 33. And the first thing He speaks, notice this, it is a prayer. We'll deal with who his prayer is about in a moment. I have several points this morning. But the first thing he does is pray. <clears throat> I want us to picture, and I know it's, it's gruesome. How many of you have had the chance to see The Passion or at least scenes from the movie The Passion? About half, maybe a little over half. It's a great movie to depict the brutality of what took place on that sacred and holy day. And when our Savior has been had His beard plucked out of His face, when He has been mocked, when He has been sent through a mock trial, when His own disciples have abandoned Him and left Him there to bleed and die alone, what does He do? Does He cry out for mercy? Does He pronounce judgment upon His crucifiers? He prays. It's an amazing thought. And not only does He pray, but His prayer is not a prayer of anger, but it's a prayer of forgiveness for His captors. No longer can His hands minister to the sick because they're nailed to the cross. No longer can His feet bring peace to the hurting, for they too are fastened to the cross. No longer can He instruct those who believe in Him in the ways of God, for they have abandoned Him and forsaken Him. What then can He do nailed to that cross? He can pray. Perhaps it's an important thing for us to learn. There's nothing more important we can do than pray. We do not have a large portion of senior citizens in our congregation who have gone beyond the age of being able to do much in the realm of, of physical work for the Lord. But when I was studying this text and thinking about Jesus, when He could no longer use His hands and when He could no longer use His feet and when He could no longer go out and do what He had done, He could pray. God, help us to understand the importance of the ministry of prayer. Often there are people who feel 
as though when their ministry's behind him and they have no more strength to minister and they have no, and God has had to raise up a younger generation to do this work and they feel like, God, why am I still here? Could it possibly be because you are here for the ministry of prayer? And maybe there's nothing that you will ever accomplish more for the ministry of God than what you will accomplish in the hour of prayer. Our Savior from the cross. The first thing He does is He prays. In praying also for these wicked murderers, He has taught us never to regard any as beyond the reach of prayer. Notice He's praying for the very people that are crucifying Him. Jesus teaches us from this very simple message from the cross, there are none, there are none that God Himself sees as beyond the reach of prayer. When you have exhausted all of your efforts, when all of your, 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 your sound arguments have failed and they have fallen on deaf ears, when every picture that you've painted has fallen on blind eyes, when every ounce of love that you have exhausted has been pushed away and rejected, Jesus still believes in the ministry of prayer to do what we cannot in and of ourselves. There is none that are beyond the reach of prayer. There is none in your life. Thank God I wasn't beyond the reach of prayer. Thank God that you weren't beyond the reach of prayer. I don't, it doesn't matter how long you've been running. It doesn't matter the extent of your wickedness. There are none that God sees as beyond the reach of prayer. We also see that prayer changes things. Prayer changes things. Jesus knew this. I think about how when Jesus prayed for us before we were ever born. In John chapter 17 and verse 20, He prayed for all those that would believe in Him. And God has answered His prayer. He prayed for you, He prayed for me, and God has answered His prayer. We also see in this message the fulfillment of the prophetic word. In Isaiah chapter 53 and verse 12, Isaiah told us ten things about the humiliation and suffering of our Redeemer. He declared that Jesus would be despised and rejected of men, that He would be a man of sorrows, acquainted with grief, that He would be wounded, bruised, and chastised, that He would be led unresistingly to the slaughter, that He should be dumb before His shearers, that He should not only suffer at the hands of man, but be bruised by the Lord, that He should pour out His soul unto death, he told us that he would be buried in a rich man's tomb. And then it was added that he would be numbered with the transgressors. And finally, that he would make intercession for the transgressors. We see the prophecy in Isaiah 53. And we see the fulfillment when Jesus cries out, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they've done. We also see in this message spoken from the Savior. While he was nailed to the cross, we see Christ identifying himself with us as his people. And let me explain. He says, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. 
Jesus has never asked a request like this yet in His ministry. Until now, Jesus Himself has forgiven sins. In Matthew chapter 9 and verse 2, you have the story of the man that was, uh, that, that was lowered into the, uh, through the roof so that Jesus could touch him and heal him. And he healed him and he said, thy sins be forgiven. And you remember the uh, scribes and the Pharisees murmuring against themselves, who is this to forgive sins? You remember the woman with the issue of blood in Luke chapter 7. Jesus healed her and He told her, your sins are forgiven, go and sin no more. But now, Jesus says, Father, forgive them. Why? And God help me to explain this to the best of my ability. Because Jesus on the cross identified with us. He was God, but He was man. And it was on the cross that He chose to become that substitution for you and I. That He chose to become the supreme sacrifice, the blood sacrifice for the remission of sins. And the forgiveness of sins is a divine prerogative that can only come from a divine God. And it's interesting when you think about the exact nature of Jesus' words. You remember He said, on earth the Son of Man has the power to forgive sins. But then in the book of John, Jesus said, when I am lifted up from the earth, speaking of the death on the cross, I will draw all men unto Me. When Jesus placed Himself on that cross, He was giving up for a very brief moment of time His authority as the King of kings and the Lord of lords and the God of glory. And He was identifying Himself with sinful humanity as He was paying our price. And as He does, He cries out, Father, forgive them. Even in this place of supreme difficulty and utter despair, He intercedes for sinners. Can I ask you, church, how often do we intercede for sinners? We have been handed the task of interceding for those who need forgiveness. Interceding and going to God on behalf of even the most wicked and vile of people that would do such a horrible and terrible deed to a man like this. Jesus did not see them beyond the ability to repent. He did not see them beyond the reach of prayer. And He prayed out, Father, forgive them. As our sacrifice and our substitution, the Lord cries out, We see Him identifying Himself with us. We also see from this very sentence the ignorance of sinners and the blindness of the human heart. Can I tell you that sin is always sin in the sight of God? Jesus said, for they know not what they do. Forgive them, Father, for they know not what they do. And I tell you that our sins of ignorance, even if we don't know what we're doing is as wicked as it is, even if we are ignorant of the sins that we have committed, we still need atonement. Ignorance is not innocence. 
They know not what they do. This doesn't mean that they are ignorant of the fact of His crucifixion, for they were there. This doesn't mean they were ignorant of the plucking of His beard, for they did that. This doesn't mean they were ignorant that they were mocking Him, for they were eyewitnesses to this wicked crime. So what does it mean they did not know what they do? I would say the emphasis is on the word what. They did not know what they were doing. They knew they were doing something. But they were oblivious to the enormous and heinous act of their crime. They didn't realize how horrible of a thing they were really doing. They did not realize that the very lover of their souls who was laying his life down for them at the very moment they were torturing him. They did not realize the magnitude of their sins. And how often is this like us? We see the, the ignorance of our sins and we see the blindness of the human heart. We don't know what we do. We don't realize how horrible our sins are. We don't realize they hurt the heart of God. We don't realize they separate us from a pure and holy God. And consequently, just like these folks, often we find ourselves with an enormous lack of respect for what took place on Calvary's cross. We see the, the blindness of the human heart. They should have known. They should have known what they were doing. The Old Testament prophecies were overwhelmingly sufficient to plainly identify Him as the Holy One of God. His teaching was like no other. And they had confessed this. He speaks with an authority like we've never heard anyone else speak. His ability to heal like no one else had ever seen. His love for the hurting unparalleled in any other time. His life was a self-sacrifice from the moment of birth, and yet they did not know the One whom they were torturing unto death. They should have known. They had heard the Father's voice thunder from the heavens, This is My beloved Son, in whom I am well pleased. They were without excuse for their ignorance. Can I tell you that we too are without excuse for our ignorance? I hear some of the absolute dumbest reasons for why people don't serve God, why they won't surrender to God, why they don't believe in God. And all I will say about that is you, if that is you, if you're making excuses for why you don't surrender to God, if you're making excuses for why He doesn't fully have your heart, if you're making excuses for why you don't believe, your excuses will crumble in the day you stand face to face. Ignorance is no excuse. We had ought to know who He is. We had ought to know what we ought to do. And our excuses will crumble in the day of judgment. Their rejection, their rejection of the Son of God, it bore, it, it bore full witness 
once and for all that the carnal mind is at war with God. And I say that this terrible tragedy is still being repeated today. Sinners have no idea how great their sin is. They have no idea what a horrible thing it is to smirk at God's love as if it's something that maybe one day I think might be needed in my life. They have no idea the enormity of the crime of dismissing Christianity as just a crutch to make people feel good. It is being repeated over and over and over again. Father, forgive them for they know not what they do. We also see the Savior modeling for us what He preached. You remember Matthew chapter 5 and verse 44 when He told us to love our enemies, do good to those that hurt you, bless those that curse you. We see our Savior once and for all in the last hours of His life proving to us there are more than words to Him. They are His life. He is the way, the life, and the truth. Can I tell you that God has not asked of us what He's not first done for us this morning? I want to close today with two final points that are the most important in our text. Father, forgive them. This teaches us they were sinners in need of forgiveness. We see in the Lord's message from the cross, from the very first thing He spoke, man's greatest need, forgiveness. We are sinners. This is our greatest need, is forgiveness. I need forgiveness more than I need wealth. I need forgiveness more than I need things. I need forgiveness more than I need a healed marriage. I need forgiveness more than I need healed. I need forgiveness more than anything in my life. Forgiveness is man's primary and greatest need, and there is none other that can give it except God. It is in vain that we attempt noble ideas and try to live by good rules until we have first addressed the sin problem. What good are shoes if my feet are paralyzed? What good are glasses if my eyes are blind? And what good is living right in the grand scale of eternity? And what good are noble ideas if I am still a sinner in need of forgiveness? I can live my life as a moral person and still spend eternity in hell. I could live my life trying to meet needs, trying to be giving of myself, trying to be a loving person, trying to be a forgiving person. I can live my life in a church. I can live my life paying my tithes. I can live my life doing good things and still spend eternity in hell. Why? The answer is simple. Because I'm not saved by doing those things. And while those things are good things, 
As Christians, we should be moral people. We should do good deeds. We should show mercy. We should be forgiving. But those things do not earn forgiveness. Because the wages of sin is death. Not good deeds. And I need forgiveness. This is my primary need. Forgiveness. And we see Christ cry out from the cross, Father, forgive them. Proclaiming man's primary need. I ask you this morning, are you forgiving? Have you honestly trusted in the grace of God and confessed that you're a sinner to Him and confessed the need that, Lord, I am doomed without forgiveness and I need your forgiveness? Or have you just made a conscious decision that God is good and you're bad, so it's time to be good and try to please Him? Because, friend, you can spend your whole life trying to do good things and then step from this realm into an eternity in hell. We see the need for repentance. Can I tell you that divine forgiveness is not like that of human forgiveness? And what I mean by that is this. Even as Christians, we kind of have a poor understanding of forgiveness. And the reason why is because God's love is so vast and deeper and other than ours. And learning to love the way Christ loves and learning to love the way that God loves us is a lifelong task that we will never be perfect at. But here's the difference. We kind of have this attitude that forgiveness means I just let it go. That it's just the washing away of guilt. That brother so-and-so or sister talks a lot, says something she shouldn't say, and it's hurtful and it's damaging, and so I just have to forgive, and we just forgive and we go about our separate ways. But divine forgiveness is not so. Because God is a perfect, unchanging God. And while He is loving and forgiving, He's also holy and just. I must ask the question, if I had murdered a man, and I found myself standing before a judge, and I knew the judge was compassionate, and I knew the judge was loving, and my request was judge, based upon your love, and your compassion for people, wouldn't you just let me go free from my crime of murder? Can I ask you, if the judge says yes, would he be a just judge? Absolutely not. So how does God justify the unjust? How does God, with a clean conscience, forgive you and I? For the first time, the answer has begun as Jesus is nailed to the cross because the wages of sin is death and He was fixing to pay the wage. The Bible says without the shedding of blood, there is no remission of sin and the blood had begun to be shed. And God said, I am willing to take the penalty. 
I am willing to pay the price. It's not that I'm going to take the sins that were committed and just excuse them as if there's no penalty needed, as if there's no justice to be served. But instead, I will pay the penalty. Instead, I will do justice. Instead, I will take the weight of all the sins of the world and I will pay for them myself so that when I do forgive and that when I do pronounce you clean, I can point to the sacrifice that was paid for all that you've done. This is the difference of divine forgiveness versus human forgiveness. One that we can hardly fully comprehend. But he cries out, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. Man's greatest need is forgiveness. And Jesus was doing just this, paying the wages of sin, and shedding the blood for the remissions of sin while He was making His plea for their forgiveness. In praying for forgiveness for His enemies, Christ has identified the root of their need. I don't want to be exhausting this morning. I'm moving fast and and I feel good about it. And I don't want to say anything more than I need to say this morning. But forgiveness is our greatest need. I can't serve God without forgiveness. Sometimes I think God empowering me to do His work is my greatest need. No, my greatest need is forgiveness. Without forgiveness, there is nothing else. Without forgiveness, I can't move any further in my relationship with God. I can't do anything for God. I can't allow God to change my life if first I won't be forgiven. It is our greatest primary need. All of us need forgiveness. Have you found it this morning? And then finally, I want to look at the word then. Verse 34 Then, Jesus said, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. In this one word, then, we see the triumph of God's redeeming love. What happened before then? Look at verse 32 and 33. There were also two other criminals led with Him to be put to death. And when they had come to the place called Calvary, there they crucified Him and the criminals, one on the right hand and the other on the left. Then, Jesus said. When? Do we see this divine act of mercy and conquering love for the enemies of God? After being shamed. After being despised. After being falsely accused after being abandoned by His followers, after being hated without a cause, then Jesus prayed for them. Thank God for then. 1 Corinthians 13, verses 4 and 7 says, Love suffereth long in this kind. Love bears all things. Love endures all things. There is no greater picture of that type of love than when we see Jesus then, after these things, After being tortured, it is then that we see this conquering love flow from His mouth. Father, forgive them, for they know not what they've done. 
When man had done his worst, when the vileness of the human heart was on dramatic display as none other time in the history of the world, then Jesus prayed. What a picture of how much greater God's grace is than the wickedness of man. After man had done his worst, then God still yet prayed, Father, forgive them. After His own disciples had turned their back on Him and the multitudes that were following Him to be fed and to be healed had abandoned Him and left Him there alone. After He had been falsely accused, after He had been tortured, after the flesh had been ripped off of His back, then He still loved us. And then He still prayed, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they've done. We see the redeeming and conquering love of the Savior, greater than the worst and most vile acts that we could ever think consciously, that we could ever do. And I tell you this morning, it doesn't matter how far you've gone. Then God loved you. After Joplin had taken his life and thrown it in the trash, then God said, I love you. After I had spent years turning my back on Him and refusing to obey Him, then God said, Son, I have a plan for your life. After you've gone as far as you can go and you've been running for God, then God still says, I love you, child. Come back home. After we have done our worst, His best is still greater than our worst. Thank God there is a then this morning. Not only for sinners, but for us as saints as well. How often do we blow it? How often do we make foolish decisions and act foolishly out of our pride and our ignorance? But then God is still faithful. But then God is still loving. But then God is still willing. But then God is still able to fix what we've messed up and to restore what we've broken and to do what we thought was impossible because His love is a conquering love. It is greater than our worst failures. It is bigger than my biggest mistakes. His love is able to conquer. It is a victorious love. I love that word in this one sentence, then. After all that, He still loved can I tell you this morning, after all, it's all said and done. If each of us were to take out a paper and begin to pin down the 20 worst things we can possibly think we have done in the last 20 years of our life, and we pinned them down, and we pinned every failure, and every time we've messed up, and every time we were selfish, and every time we hurt somebody, at the bottom it would still say, then God is able. Thank God for the then. Thank God that His love is sufficient. It is a conquering. It is a victorious love. And no matter how much I mess it up, and no how vile the human heart can be, and no matter how wicked man can be, His love, where sin abounded, grace did abound all the more, it is a victorious and conquering love this morning. He still stands this morning with arms wide open saying, child, why do you wait to come? Do you really think my love is not great enough to conquer and overcome all of your failures? 
Can you not see that even after I was rejected and abandoned and falsely accused and hours from moments of breathing my last breath, I was still able to say, then, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. Thank God for then. A few closing thoughts. I'll go ahead and ask our worship team to get prepared. What about those who know what they ought to do, but don't do it? The men in our text, the Bible says, did not know what they were doing. What about those of you here this morning that you do know? You know clearly that what you're doing is wrong. You know clearly that you are in violation of the will of God. You know clearly that God is calling you to to, uh, something else, but yet you say no. What about those who do know what they ought to do? What about those who do know they ought to serve God? They ought to repent. They ought to abandon the, the relationships that are pulling them away and pushing them in the wrong direction. What about those who do know that they ought to repent of their sins and serve Him, but yet willingly and consciously choose not to? Hebrews tells us that if we sin willfully after we have received the knowledge of the truth, there remaineth no more sacrifice for sins, but a fearful looking for of judgment and of fiery indignation which shall devour the adversaries. This morning, thank God for then. But I want to encourage you, if you're not saved this morning, get saved today. Today. Today is the day of salvation. Quit running from God. But preacher, you don't know what I've done. You don't know where I've been. You don't know what my life looks like. You don't know where I'm at today. You're right about all that. But I do know this. There is still a then. God still loves you. Even after all of that, then God is able to do above and abundantly beyond all you could ever ask or imagine. The Savior preaches to us from the cross the supremacy of prayer. God, help us to understand the ministry of prayer. Thank you, Lord. God, move in this place.